everyone and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. The show was written, produced, and recorded in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the Bay Area. If you've taken BART or been through the SFO airport recently, you've probably seen advertising highlighting that it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. Amidst a summer of intense political heat, the city is certainly banking off remembering this iconic moment. But since the so-called sexual revolution, have we actually reached a <clears throat> climax of sexual liberation? Or might there still be unfinished work to do? Wouldn't sexual liberation require consent, decolonization, and accountability? Let's find out. On tonight's show, we will learn about the history of consent on this continent, move beyond the dominant understanding of sexuality in settler colonial culture, and discuss loving with accountability. Just a quick trigger warning, please be forewarned that this radio hour includes discussion of colonization, sexual assault, and child sexual abuse. Please take good care of yourself while you listen. I'm your host, Kat Petru. Please stay with us. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. For some of you, tonight may be an introduction to new ways of imagining intimacy. For others, the suppressed possibilities may be more familiar. Either way, this journey can be quite potent, so I hope to share these reflections and visions with utmost care. Our hour begins with feminist icon Audre Lorde. Her famous essay, Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power, is a reminder that our vital energy is extremely precious and powerful. As we delve into the ways in which this energy is so often abused and weaponized against us, I invite us all to listen carefully to Lord and keep her words close. What I wanted to speak to today is another aspect or the opposite of the pornographic because it's really hard I know it is for me and I'm sure it is for you Andrea Dworkin yesterday spoke about the necessity of our knowing our enemy well in order to know our enemy we have to expose ourselves to some really energy sapping things and to do that we need all the strength we can get. We need each one of us to deal from a place where we are most powerful. And what I wanted to talk about today was the erotic as a source of that power and how urgent it is that we recognize that within ourselves and that we not confuse the pornographic with the erotic. The name of this is uses of the erotic, the erotic is power. Now there are many kinds of power both the ones we use and the ones we do not yet use, acknowledged and otherwise. 
The erotic is a resource within each one of us that lies in a very deeply female and spiritual plane. It is firmly rooted in the power of all our unexpressed and unrecognized feelings. In order to perpetrate itself, every oppression in our history must corrupt or distort those various sources of power within the culture of the oppressed, as for instance, within our culture as women, that can provide energy for change. Now, for women, this has meant the suppression of the erotic as a considered source of our power and information within our lives. We have been taught to suspect this resource. It has been vilified, abused, and devalued within Western society. On one hand, the superficially erotic has been encouraged as a sign of our inferiority. On the other hand, women have been made to suffer and to feel contemptible and suspect by virtue of its existence. So actually, it's a very short step from there to the very false belief that it is only by the suppression of the erotic within our lives and our consciousness that women can be truly strong. But that kind of strength is illusory. It is not real because it is fashioned within the context of a male model of power. As women, we have often come to distrust that power which rises from our deepest and non-rational knowledge because, of course, we have been warned against it all our lives by a male world which values this depth of feeling enough to keep women around in order to exercise it in their service, but which fears this same depth too much to examine the possibilities of it within themselves. So, in this case, women are maintained at a distant and inferior position, psychically milked much the same way that ants maintain colonies of aphids to provide a life-giving substance for the masters. But the erotic offers a well of replenishing and provocative force to any woman who does not fear its revelation, nor succumb to the belief that sensation is enough. You are listening to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA, and that was feminist icon Audre Lorde reading from her essay, Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power. Tonight's show offers tremendous interventions into settler rape culture on Turtle Island, a.k.a. North America. And I want to share a reminder that this radio hour includes discussion of colonization, sexual assault, and child sexual abuse. So please do take good care of yourself as you listen. Up next, we have the first of three interviews with profoundly inspiring women, all of whom were interviewed by community educator Anjali Nath Upadhyay. Anjali is the founder of Liberation Spring, a grassroots adult freedom school started in 2015. She's academically trained as a political scientist, philosopher, and educator. She holds a master degree in political science from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, with specializations in indigenous politics and political theory, and a graduate certificate in international cultural studies. She also holds a master's degree in women's studies from San Diego State University. And her long-standing curiosity centralized learning and teaching as practices of liberation. Her first discussion is with Dr. Sarah Hunt. 
Dr. Sarah Hunt teaches at the University of British Columbia in the First Nations and Indigenous Studies Department and the Department of Geography as Assistant Professor of Critical Indigenous Geographies. She is Kwakwakwak from Salis and has spent most of her life as a guest in Lekwungen territories. Her writing and research emerge within the networks of community relations that have fostered her analysis as a community-based researcher with particular focus on issues facing women, girls, and two-spirit people. Dr. Hunt's conversation with Anjali reveals the fundamental absence of consent in dominant settler colonial culture and illuminates a different way of relating, not only to our bodies and other human beings, but also to land. Please note that this interview was recorded remotely. Sarah, it is so great to reconnect with you. Thank you for your time and energy being able to connect this morning. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. I'd like to begin by sharing my tremendous gratitude for the work that you do, certainly as an academic, but also as an activist. I'm just really sincerely appreciative of also how you model what it means to be an academic in a way that includes accountability. And so I'm also just personally so grateful to be able to learn from you and from the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you, it's a lot. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the event that you emceed last night? How was that? Wonderful. Indigifem was called. It was part of the local queer film festival, but um, it was a combination of, of short films by Indigenous filmmakers and performance. So we had poetry and dance and a song and all kinds of incredible performers. I used to do spoken word like a long time ago, <laughs> almost 20 years, maybe 20 years. So it was really, for me, the first time I've been in that kind of community environment, again, on the stage for quite a long time. So it just felt really good to be amongst um, other Indigenous people who are thinking about sexuality and gender and linking that. We had our themes were body sovereignty and sex sovereignty. So we were in whatever way people wanted to, you know, explore that. So it was really heartwarming and just felt very, people just yeah, I kept saying how good it felt to be in that community space. So that's wonderful. Oh, that sounds amazing. So on that front, then, how do you understand bodily sovereignty and sex sovereignty? I've done anti-violence work since I was a teenager, so really starting within my own family and sort of seeing it as my obligation to do that work. Yeah, just, just working in kind of intimate relation with members of my family and community. So I think that I have first sort of come to think about body sovereignty from that place of knowing the harms of colonization, the harms of especially intergenerational trauma, and then I guess becoming more involved in communities like queer communities, uh, also kind of, on the other hand, communities doing land defense who are thinking about sovereignty differently. I think all of that has really informed how I think about body sovereignty as well. So understanding that like the Native East Sexual Health Network does great work to think about sovereignty radiating outwards from our bodies, like that really has to start here. And especially that our movements as Indigenous communities and our ability to restore ourselves fully, our, our cultures, our laws, that that isn't possible if we don't have that at a personal level. So kind of connecting the way that colonization has impacted our ability to have consent and to fully be, you know, seen as who we are and all those things. Without that, we will never fully have sovereignty or self-determination as peoples. 
Yeah, so for me, my anti-violence work, kind of an interpersonal level, really informs that in relation to connecting to land and those kinds of struggles as well. Thank you for that. So speaking of which, how do you understand consent? To start with Indigenous people, our ability to give consent has been compromised, obviously, and is constrained by power within colonization. You know, colonization has involved other people imposing their decisions about how our lives should be, whether that's our names for ourselves, you know, needing to have like English last names, for example, the names for territories, where we live, how we live, our everyday governance, decisions about our children, like really all aspects of our lives. Our consent hasn't really been factored in, (laughs) obviously, with colonization. So then on the other hand, if we think about consent, as we think about it with with our bodies and in our relationships with each other, really needs to be thought about in relation to other kinds of consent in our daily lives. So thinking about um, the institutions that we work in and how we can foster consent. So for me in my classroom, in my relationships with my colleagues, but also to think about how we came to be here. So on the coast here, I'm on Musqueam Territories, also known as Vancouver. I'm from a coastal nation that we would not have been here historically if we didn't have the consent of the local peoples to be here. So, you know, thinking about how we came to be here without that consent, how do we reconcile those things in ourselves and the way we we live here? And for me, being a good guest here means thinking about consent in my daily lives, how I can engage with the peoples of this land, and then how I can model principles of consent in all areas of my life. So not just when it comes to interpersonal intimate relationships, but I guess physical intimacy, but other kinds of intimacy as well. And to me, that's really like a decolonial approach to thinking about consent is to make those connections that are more than, yeah, I guess just the typical way that we think about consent within law or something like that. Yeah, thank you so much for that intervention and your work. I'm so appreciative of that. So it sounds similar to this idea of consensual allyship that I know you've done some writing about. Could you talk a little bit about what that idea means for our listeners that might not have heard of it before? Yeah, so consensual allyship is really an idea that I first heard about through Jessica Danforth, who is the founder of the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, which does amazing work in the States and in Canada, actually, and all over the place. I think especially, you know, several years ago when Idle No More was really big and then we've seen in the States recently with the mobilization around the Dakota Access Pipeline that there are a lot of people kind of jumping to claim allyship with Indigenous peoples. And I even remember someone that I knew had a hat that said Indigenous ally on it, you know, like really, you can buy this hat and just put it on and then you're, you're an ally. And so in a lot of different contexts that is not necessarily done actually in relationship with or communication with the people you're in allyship with, but just saying, I'm going to show up at the rally or I'm, I don't know, whatever people are deciding for themselves what allyship looks like. And so she just had this concept of consensual allyship. It really requires relationship because it means to know you have an invitation to work in allyship or other people's consent for you to act kind of in their name, right? That you're saying, I'm working as an ally to these people, that they're claiming you instead of you claiming (laughs) them. That, uh, yeah, having that consent means that you have some sense of what people are asking you to work with them on or, or for. To me, also requires like a really localized form of allyship in that often people think Indigenous struggles are all the same. But in fact, you know, with local initiatives, allyship might look very different than what you might conceive of. It might be doing work behind the scenes. It might be making a bunch of sandwiches. Who knows what? There's all kinds of things that it might mean. It means that you're not going to claim to be doing work in someone's name without their 
consent or invitation. So I think there's so many ways that people are always looking for people to work with them, like invitations to come to events, to, you know, where I live on the reserve in Victoria, there's constantly invitations for people to come to see like youth celebrating some achievement they've had or a fundraiser. And there's not often a lot of people from outside the community that come. So those are great you know, examples of an invitation to be an ally. It's not as glamorous being on the front lines of a protest, which is often when people claim allyship, but you know, those kind of smaller community events, I think there's lots of examples of those. Can you share with our listeners how you understand rape culture, please? Well, what I said before about all the layers of imposition and coercion that have occurred through colonization, I mean, to me, that is the foundation of rape culture. So it's not just about force at the level of our bodies, but that that's embedded within a larger culture. Colonization is founded on, you know, categories of people within hierarchies where some people have that power and some people do not. And to me, it's not an abstract sort of thing. Like, I think there is a movement increasingly, especially in academic circles, but sometimes in activist circles as well, and recognizing some of us go across those those realms of activists and academia, in which decolonization is kind of about ideas, that it's about just categories or binaries or ways of seeing the world that are colonial in nature. And then decolonial work is about unpacking that and, and thinking differently But, you know, I think it's really important to ground this work in the material outcomes of the imposition of those categories and that way of thinking that we can't really do decolonial work through ideas, that it has to be grounded in material everyday realities. And, you know, recognizing that we all came to be here, that we're we're all in this culture together because of colonization. And, you know, for me, all other things spring out of that racism sexism, patriarchy, ableism, all of that is made possible by colonization. And it's interesting to me, I think in the States, my experience has been that there's less of a, like an integration of an anti-colonial, not just again, a theorizing, but of a thinking about this place that we speak from. And there is a recognition of colonization a long time ago, but not that it's still ongoing. So recognizing the settler colonial nature of our of our nations and then understanding how yeah how colonial ways of thinking are enacted every day and how structure our lives our community how we envision indigenous um, our relationships with indigenous people so for me then rape culture isn't just about gender and race sometimes it's just gender sometimes people think of race but that uh it's really deeply embedded in larger colonial power structures and if you really think about the the fact that colonization has involved the imposition of power structures that have denied Indigenous people the ability to live where we want, to raise our families how we want, to have the names that we call ourselves, to be in the kinds of relationships that we want, family and kinship structures, like really the the building blocks of our, building blocks is a kind of colonial term, <laughs> the, the foundational elements of our worlds, uh, that has been denied. And so all of that, of course, shapes rape culture at the level of our, our bodies, but it's not just just about sexual violence. It's really about all of these other forms of violence that are interconnected. It's really important that anti-violence movements have included, come to be more inclusive of Indigenous people's concerns, but 
I haven't seen a lot of instances of anti-violence movements and people, for example, standing in solidarity with Indigenous peoples' attempts to give consent over our lands or to get our children back and have consent over how our children are treated by the state. Those are about, That's about rape culture, too, in my mind, because it's all about the ability to give consent, to have agency, and to be considered a person who, I guess, to disrupt those hierarchies, those categories in which rape culture is situated. Magnetic attraction, mutual satisfaction, first sight, love at eye contact. I love it that our passion is such a high contrast to the possessiveness that limited our love ships in the past. I'm a bird who sings in the springtime. She's a girl who smiles like the sunrise. Though I love the days when she's all mine. I don't try to bottle her sunshine. Loving, crushing, she sees me staring. Baby, maybe loving is sharing. Feel the wind of love on the sky. I'm a bird that can't help but fly I can't fit inside monogamy's philosophies of one and only Constantly stopping me from boundlessly expressing what is possibly the greatest force in all of me My heart cannot be property Ownership is opposite of all that love has taught to me The infinite capacity of each of us to happily surrender to the majesty of learning love's true mastery Each one of us a tapestry, anatomy like galaxies, it's fallacy I need someone complete the other half of me Reality is many souls Reflect my whole totality, complexity, vitality, my sensual mentality. Rather than analogies of draining like a battery, the more and more I practice love, the more my love grows naturally. I know a few interpreters think jealousy is flattery. I avidly promote, we try to rise up from the agony, try out a brand new strategy, flip envy into ecstasy, amplify through alchemy. I'm a bird who sings in the springtime. She's a girl who smiles like the sunrise. Though I Love the days when she's all mine I don't try to bottle her sunshine Got a feeling, oh girl, express it Love is never love when possessed Feel the wind of love on the sky She's a bird that can't help but fly If a girl asks you to dance, then dance with the girl And if it feels right, then you should hold hands with the girl Cause I believe that God is love and love She keeps telling me to step back, relax and deconstruct your jealousy Cause jealousy is fear Some days I'm scared of losing you But you and I are free to leave if we choose to I'm taking down the bricks of this invisible wall And when the wind of love blows Now we both can feel it all Cause you love to hear me sing Even if you didn't write the note I love to hear you laugh Even if I didn't tell the joke You know I love to cuddle with you Pull your body close And I love it when you're happy Even if I have to let you go Cause if you need your space Then baby you can let me know I love you from afar You must Start in the telescope, I'm not a god, I'm not a fool, but I would be both To think that love was something I could control, right? right. <laughs> I'm a bird who sings in the springtime She's a girl who smiles like the sunrise Though I love the days when she's all mine I don't try to bottle her sunshine Trusting love and true understanding Universe of us is expanding Feel the wind of love on the sky 
out. We are birds that can't help but fly. I love how your empathy finds joy in my intimacy with someone else that's into me. Love is limitless infinitely. I love it how my loyalty dissolves your insecurity. Our love it blooms concurrently. You know that's my priority. I'm soaring through an odyssey deep in the realms of honesty with conscious choreography, consensual autonomy, equality responsibly. I feel our trusted waters me a love like this is selflessly fulfilling like a prophecy. Cause there's no better way to love me than through up to realize your love. Welcome back to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and you just heard Climbing Poetry, where their song Can't Help But Fly. Before that, Anjali Nathupadia spoke with Dr. Sarah Hunt about the relationship between bodily and sex sovereignty and decolonization. Hopefully their conversation helped explain those terms for folks who've had less exposure to them. Those of us listening here on Turtle Island, the North American continent, live in a settler colonial empire, which partially means colonizers stole the continent from indigenous people and still live here without the free, prior, and informed consent of native nations. As you can see, this social structure is 100% non-consensual. So in order to remember and renew a culture of consent, decolonization is mandatory. Our next guest, Dr. Kim Talbear, provides further illumination. Dr. Kim Talbear is an associate professor in Native Studies at the University of Alberta and author of the book Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science, among many other publications. Dr. Talbear completed a PhD from the History of Consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz. In 2016, the Government of Canada awarded her a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Environment. She's created the blogs Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Environment and The Critical Polyamorist. She's also an enrolled member of the Sisseton Wapatan Oyate in South Dakota. Here is Dr. Kim Talbear in conversation with Anjali Nath Upadhyay of Liberation Spring. This dialogue was recorded over Skype. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, thank you. So I would like to just start off by sharing my gratitude for the work that you do. One thing that I'm especially appreciative of is around your work, how it's sort of gesturing towards some glimmer of possibility around relationality, around the erotic beyond the sort of dominant U.S. culture's mediocrity to make it plain on that front. And so I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the work that you do at your blog, The Critical Polyamorous, please. Well, you know, I started writing that blog in uh, 2013, I think it was, or maybe 2014, just as a way for me to process my personal journey or practice of polyamory. And um, I mean, I am an anthropologist, so I'm also familiar with insider anthropology and autoethnography. And I thought, well, why don't I bring those methodological skills to reflect on my own life? And as I moved through this new cultural community, and at the time I was in Austin, Texas, and so 
because if I don't understand something, I, I can't be happy unless I have understanding of what's going on. And so I'm, I'm pretty self-reflexive about everything. And I didn't want to just do it and experiment. I wanted to really uh, sort of increase my understanding of myself and of the world and my place in the world. And I'm not a big believer in therapy, so I kind of do <laughs> autoethnography on myself. <laughs> so, more just because it's inconvenient and costs money. You know? and, I, and I like the, the anthropological material I produce. So, so anyway, I started doing that blog, and you learn a lot when you write about something, right? And then I brought my creative writing practice back into it with the Critical Poly 100s, which I hadn't been doing creative writing in 20, 20 years since I went back and became an academic. And so what I guess what I was trying to do besides that, think through my own stuff, was also just send, you know, I felt like a, a, a faraway planet, you know, sending radio signals out into the universe. I just was hoping that some people out there who think about the intersections of non-monogamy, settler colonialism, race, you know, gender, would would pick up on that, that I would find people to talk to. And I don't get tons of comments, but I do, I do get some, and they're very powerful, and I get a pretty decent circulation of the, of the blog posts when I actually put them on social media. And then I've also been invited to give talks, which has really kind of increased my community. So I recently keynoted the Solo Polyamory Conference, the first one ever in Vancouver, although I got sick and had to do it by Skype. But I've actually then since met some of the people in that community, and I'm really developing this kind of Solo Polyamory community over Facebook. There's going to be a meeting in Seattle in the next year, which I'm hoping to go to. So for me, this is kind of at least a national or international community between the U.S. and Canada so far. And of course, there are polyamory researchers all over the world. There's a conference coming up in Vienna next month, I think. So, uh, yeah, through that blog, I was able to build a virtual community when it's sometimes hard to have a community in, in the city that you live in, because polyamory is still a very much a minority practice. And you're a minority in so many ways, and especially being an indigenous woman, I'm not hoping that I'm going to find a really vibrant community of like-minded thinkers, even polyamory folks in the cities that I live in, because it's not only non-monogamy I'm dealing with, which is completely going against the societal grain. It's the fact that I'm a feminist, that I'm anti-racist, that I'm anti-settler colonialism, and I think that those are conversations that should be central to ethical non-monogamy, and most polyamorous never think about those things, far as I can tell. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's exactly right on that front that I'm also so appreciative of your work because, you know, in the dominant society, the sort of understanding of ethical non-monogamy is like either wife swapping or swinging or some kind of, you know, just like the same old heterosexist objectification without attention to imagining beforehand and otherwise the ways, right, that our ancestors might have practiced relationality or kinship. So it's that sort of intervention into the realm of ethical non-monogamy, to use that fraught language, so to speak, around making kin and around relationality that I'm so appreciative of in your work. Could you elaborate maybe a little bit upon that for folks, especially for POC, for Native folks, for oppressed peoples that are, you know, maybe starting to realize right now in their journeys how hustled we've been by this capitalist propaganda of the nuclear, right, cis, heterosexual, um, monogamous marriage as a unit for relating how you're expanding your understanding beyond that practice? 
Yeah, sure. And I just wanted to say, I was at a conference at Penn State this spring, and Zakia Jackson was there. And I think Zakia graduated from Berkeley. I knew her there. She is, what does she call herself, a diasporic uh, African-American feminist, I think. And she does a critical animal studies and critical relations stuff, too, like I do. And she said to me, why do you call it ethical non-monogamy? That implies that monogamy is ethical. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Monogamy is not ethical, usually. So I've been trying to call it open non-monogamy or something else. Yes, right. like, that's so funny that she caught me on that. Yeah, so I, you know, when I started doing this, of course, the model that we have is this Western kind of white middle class, uh, you know, non polyamory or whatever, the forms that you talked about, swinging as well. Mm-hmm. They're very, very heterosexual driven in many ways. There's a whole lot of queer folks who do other kinds of forms of critical relations, right, and, and, not, and non-monogamy, but they might not use the same terms that straight people often do. Yeah, for me, when I started doing it, it's just, it felt so right, even given the critiques, the, the, the racial and the settler colonial critiques that I have of the way it gets practiced. It felt really right, the way it opened up uh, the fluidity of my relationships. So I was able to defetishize sexuality by embracing such an open form of sexuality. And so really able to realize the kinds of gradations between sexual touch and other forms of intimate touch. And it made me more receptive to non-sexual forms of intimate touch. I used to be a person who really didn't like to be touched. And as I paid more attention to consent, of course, but also to the the sort of ways in which we get touch deprived in our society that that fetishizes and represses sexuality, it really damages healthy kinds of touch, right? And so that expanded to me having more fluidity among my different relationships. I was very ready to defetishize the couple Mm -hmm. because in my history, you know, we are a non-monogamous people, Dakota people, we had plural marriage until a nuclear family and monogamy and state-sanctioned marriage was imposed on us along with compulsory uh, conversions to Christianity. So Christianity came along with residential schools or boarding schools. Children were removed from families. They were put into these schools. They were forbidden from speaking our indigenous languages. Marriage was imposed along with private property regimes. So all of this came together within a span of a a generation. Uh, the, The federal government and along with the churches, the churches and the feds were in bed together, imposed all of this on indigenous people and suddenly you know, we're, we're caught up in this kind of system that really disrupted our relationships with each other. We lived in extended families and Dakota communities, we call that the Tioshpaye, with another word for extended family. That kind of reaches out into the Oyate, which is the word we use for tribe or people now. But it was sets of extended families governing ourselves together. Uh, there were reasons why, why plural marriage existed that we don't know how sexual or non-sexual those plural marriages were. They were about taking care of children, taking care of partners, taking care of the elderly, about taking care of the community and forming an alliance as a couple, but with multiple, it, it, it was plural wives, but uh, divorce was flexible. So women could kick the guy out. Household property belonged to the women. The teepee belonged to the woman. So women had a lot of uh, economic agency. And what happens when the federal government and the Christian church comes in and imposes monogamy and nuclear family is they take away the agency of women. Women can no longer hold property at the turn of the 20th century. The the Allotment Act that gave a land to settlers and it gave land to indigenous people and forced them into these nuclear families, 
the head of household is the one who owned the land. Well, that's a man. Mm -hmm. And the man gets more land if he has a wife, and he gets yet more land if he has children. And women didn't have property rights. So this completely undercut women's agency. It tied them up with men into these lifelong marriages that they couldn't leave. Divorce wasn't legal, you know, until quite recently. So, yeah, the whole thing is just this incredibly oppressive system where it's monogamy goes hand in hand with forced conversion. It goes hand in hand with private property. Mm -hmm. And people need to see the links between those things. So when I hear polyamorous say, oh, well, it's an individual choice. I choose to be poly. You choose to be monogamous. (laughs) They're both valid choices. In my mind, no, that's That's not just individual choice. There's a whole compulsory monogamy system tied up with private property that's been Mm -hmm. shoved down our throats. And this is one of the reasons that I actually think open non-monogamy is in fact the more ethical choice Thank you. because it's going up against that settler colonial state of affairs and monogamy is buying into it and until mm-hmm. we have a world in which there's not this system forcing monogamy onto us ideologically and legally mm-hmm. I don't really believe it's a choice for very many people. So. Thank you. Yeah, let's put that in conversation with consent. If no isn't a viable option legally, familially, then it, how is it even consensual to opt into an alternative? Yeah. I mean, I look at all the, you know, the different partners I've had too. How many, I'm lucky that I'm an academic. I'm lucky that I come from a family that is proud of our Dakota history. And even while we might be a little bit like, oh my God, yeah, we were non-monogamous. What do I think of that? I come from a family and a culture that if they hear this explanation from me, they'd be like, okay, that's, that's valid. I don't, Nobody would threaten to take my children away. My Mm -hmm. ex-husband is a feminist. He's Mm -hmm. anti-racist. He knows what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole lot of people out there that worry about getting their children taken away. They worry Mm -hmm. about losing their jobs. They Mm -hmm. worry about being completely disowned by their families. I fail to see how monogamy then is really a choice. It's it's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a dangerous step to make for a lot of people. And I'm lucky that I have the space in my life as a Dakota person, as a feminist, and as an academic to be able to do things that are more against the grain than what a lot of people can do. Right, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, there's also the class dimension as well. And then you spoke to region, right? Geography, how that informs. And then with the internet, the ways in which we can and can't connect with folks. So yeah, so important to name. Right. For sure. Yeah, no, class is big, right? Yeah, I mean, I have a nice professor job and, you know, as opposed to, yeah, if I was living on the reservation, right? Like, I, yeah, I can go to Vancouver and have community and, yeah. Well, I know you've got to get on to the next thing, but I am so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for everything. Woman is a holy myth, a gift of man's expression She sleeps 
You are listening to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was Smother Love by Crass. And before that, you heard Anjali Nath Upadhyaya of Liberation Spring in conversation with Dr. Kim Talbert. There is so much more that our interviewees have to share as their extensive work cannot be captured in one hour. Please do check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org for links to all our guests and feel free to go to liberationspring.com where full interviews with Dr. Sarah Hunt, Dr. Kim Talbert and our next guest will soon be shared on the Feral Visions podcast. Just a quick trigger warning for those of you who are just joining us. This next segment includes discussion of sexual assault and child sexual abuse. So please do take good care of yourselves while you listen. At the beginning of the show, I posed the question, since the so-called sexual revolution 50 years ago, has the U.S. actually reached sexual liberation? My hope is that these conversations reveal both the ways in which that promise has yet to be fulfilled and expose our imaginations to liberatory and consensual ways of relating. Our final interview for the hour is with Aisha Shahida Simmons. Aisha is an award-winning black feminist, lesbian documentary filmmaker, activist, cultural worker, writer, and international lecturer. An incest and adult rape survivor, she is the creator of the internationally acclaimed Ford Foundation-funded film No, the Rape Documentary, and the Just Beginnings collaborative-funded multimedia campaign, hashtag Love with Accountability. Aisha is a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice, where she is affiliated with the Evelyn Jacobs Ortner Center for Violence. She is also an associate editor of the online publication The Feminist Wire. Here is Anjali Nath Upadhyaya of Liberation Spring with Aisha Shahida Simmons. Thank you so much for coming down to the station to be in dialogue, Aisha. I really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome, Anjali. Glad mm-hmm. to be able to do it. How are you doing today? Um, it's ups and downs today. It's a challenging time, but getting to some, I think, root root issues. I've been kind of dancing on the surface, and I think I'm getting to the root of some things. So mm-hmm. um, That's so good to hear. Beautiful. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I'm for coming in a ball of tears, but, you know, mm-hmm. so, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. this is the work. Right. You can say mm-hmm. that again. Yeah, some mm-hmm. days are like that, to be sure. Right. So I would love to first off begin by sharing tremendous gratitude that I have for you for the work that you do and for how you've devoted your life to creating cultural products and processes for the rest of us to bear witness to in support of our collective liberation. So I would love to really just begin by first thanking you for all that you do in your life. Thank you very much. I know that you have started working on a new project that has been so incredible to be able to bear witness to from afar, Love with Accountability. Would you be open to sharing with our listeners a little bit about that project, please? Yes. Love with Accountability is a Just Beginnings collaborative funded project. It's my project, but the funding comes from 100% of the funding comes from the Just Beginnings collaborative, which is funded by the 
Novo Foundation. It is a multimedia campaign designed specifically for communities of African descent, but it's for everyone, but that's where my, my focus is. Looking at how accountability is a radical form of love needed to end child sexual abuse. And so when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about love as a force and a power that transcends romantic love or even familial love, that it's just this is force that we need to keep the world moving in a sane and humane place. Obviously, we need a lot of it. So often as survivors, and I'm speaking as a child sexual abuse survivor and adult rape survivor, but in the context of child sexual abuse, we are told that if we loved our family, we would not break the silence. We would not talk about the harm done to us. And I'm saying that it is precisely because of love that we have to talk about it. And so I'm my my work, my goal with Love with Accountability is that we think about accountability as a form of love, that not as a form of punishment, but as an inviting end to interrupt to address child sexual abuse and recognizing that all parties of harm so we have to clearly place the survive victim survivor at the center like that that has she or he or they have to be at the center but then also recognizing that the person who's causing the harm is clearly in some form of harm as well it has been harmed in some form or fashion and and what does that look like in a way that holds them accountable this idea of being survivor centered might be new to some folks could you talk a little bit more about some of what that looks like? Yeah, survivor-centered for me um, means that we are thinking about what are the survivor's needs and issues so that we're not going to tell the survivor, well, Johnny or Mary had a hard day at work or they're dealing with racism at the job or, you know, um, and so we have to understand that this is why they're doing what they're doing. No. There's no, there's no reason or excuse to cause harm. And so, and while we may be, in, you know, very upset about white supremacy, I know I am, that is, should never, um, ever be an excuse to cause any form of harm in terms of uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, or anything. So survivor-centered is really focusing on making sure that the survivor is safe, that they don't feel re-traumatized, re-victimized, and holding the person who's caused harm accountable or helping or supporting them is not at the expense of the survivor. So also around accountability then, since that can look so different in so many different contexts, could you elaborate a little more on community accountability more broadly when it comes to, say, healing from sexual assault, child sexual assault? Community accountability in terms of broad strokes is really, you know, first of all, how do we define who is our community, right? So mm-hmm. some people are just their family of origin. Other people, it is their chosen families. It's the, the members in their church or mosques or synagogues or temples or in their schools. Um, So using community very broadly, but community accountability is not allowing that person who's caused harm off the hook so that Mm -hmm. we know, we may know that someone has abused um, a child and then if they're a deacon in a church or a leader in a synagogue that they are not, then therefore celebrated that, Mm -hmm. that, that, all all spaces and community are holding this person accountable mm-hmm. and not and I don't believe in prisons um, I still have a hard time envisioning what that would look like what a world would look like without prisons but what I do know is that prison is not going to stop rape or child sexual abuse adults and children are raped and abused in prison there's no rehabilitation so what are these ways in which we can hold people accountable in our communities and one of those is like uh, not like not hiding the fact that someone's caused harm so that we acknowledge it in the 
in places of worship, in jobs, in communities, and that we that there are programs for rehabilitation, for re-education. So in terms of that community, that is not just it's the burden is not just on the survivor, mm-hmm. and that we're also not asking the state to then step in and make these decisions, like because that's essentially what happens. We're asking the state, and then the state, as we know, particularly in communities of color, these draconian, barbaric laws. So often people go free without any kind of accountability. And then even if they are serving time, what's going on in those prisons, the whole name registry with people's names on that. I mean, there's so many examples of how much harm that that's done, Mm -hmm. particularly with children. That's also a problem as well, Mm -hmm. because I do believe in change. I do believe in transformation and evolution, and I do believe people can change. And when thinking about children, I don't believe that children should be on registries or, you know, viewed as molesters for the rest of their lives. And that's not, for me, a humane or civil society that I want to live in. You've written that some of your journey has been more recent around specifically speaking more publicly about your process of healing when it comes to child sexual assault. Could you share with us a little bit about that process for you of stepping up with the bravery and the support in this moment in your life to be able to be more public about that? Yeah, well, I'm a, let's see, 15, 2002, 15-year practitioner of a form of meditation called Vipassana meditation. Now, Vipassana meditation, known as insight, is practiced all over. Many traditions practice it or incorporate it into their practice. I'm in the tradition of Essen Goenka, but I, I shared this to say that I, in these courses, range, the minimum as a new student you can take are 10 days, um, but old students can take shorter courses, but I've taken courses over the past past 15 years, 10 days, 20 days, 30-day courses of silent meditation, 12 hours a day. For 25 years, I've been in therapy working with Dr. Clara Whaley Perkins, a black feminist licensed clinical psychologist who's also the founder and director of an organization called the Life After Trauma Organization. I preface all this, what I'm about to share with these two specifically, therapy for 25 years, for passion and meditation for 15 years. I don't think I'd even be able to sit here, um, talk to you do the work that I do without both of those tools, resources, as somebody who was molested at 10 and raped at 19 and, you know, just as a black queer woman in this country, in the United States, like that these tools, um, these resources have are kind of um, non-negotiable tools that have enabled me to move forward on my journey, life of living, and then also just doing the work that I believe I'm called to do. Many listeners, I'm sure, might have had some similar experiences within their biological families and other spaces where perhaps folks that we had imagined were there for us, to support us, to protect us, whatever it might be, for whatever their own reasons are, have not been able to confront ways in which perhaps they either didn't protect their children or their other loved ones. Would you have any words in particular for those listeners that might be confronting similar experiences, say, within their families and aren't in a place for a variety of reasons, perhaps, to be able to have those dialogues openly? Yeah, I... You know, as of today, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but I think it's really important to just say it in terms of the date. You know, as of August 14th, 2017, my father and I have not had a dialogue about what has happened. I mean, we've, there's been some cyber dialogues. And for anyone who knows me or can even Google me, I, my father and I 
were so I mean I still love my father deeply and am close to him in many ways but the level of closeness that he and I shared if anybody had said who's which parent would get it I would have, I would have put my life on the line to say it would be my dad and not my mom because we had such my mother and I had such a fraught I mean it's just been so challenging on so many levels so that's that's also been a powerful lesson in terms of that you don't know who's going to get it or who's going to be able to see it. You know, so I think that that's really important. And also that people don't get it until they get it. And that's not to say that you don't keep pushing, but it is, I just recognize, I spelled it. I just basically was like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And my mom still couldn't see it because that veil that was, was protecting her. And then finally, due to a series of events that were partially connected to me, and I can't go into it because it involves other people but you know someone very close to her really helped her see um but it wasn't even me who helped her see that just kind of that let the veil fall down so i in terms of those people and i think there's so many of us right where they can't have those conversations what i would say first and foremost is that our healing and our liberation cannot be contingent upon anyone else that we cannot wait or the healing to occur until your mother or your brother or your sister or your lover or your friend or your rabbi or your imam or minister or, you know, Babalao, until they see it. Because, unfortunately, that's not the case. Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. That was the band Bikini Kill. 
And before that, Anjali Nath Upadia of Liberation Spring in conversation with Aisha Shahida Simmons on loving with accountability. In case you didn't catch it, the last line of that song is, I believe in the radical possibilities of pleasure, babe. I do, I do, I do. And on that note, we have reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you so much for listening. Again, links to all our guests' work and further resources can be found on our website, kpfaapprentice.org. And liberationspring.com will soon post the unabridged interviews through the Feral Visions podcast. Please tune in next week to Full Circle for a special episode on Chile's 9-11, a day when a U.S.-backed coup expelled Chile's democratically elected president and installed a ruthless dictator. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host, Kat Petru, and special thanks to Anjali Nathupadia for all her work on the show. Thank you to Teresa Adams on the ones and twos and to Sharon and Steve, our dynamic tech assistant duo. And as always, thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Please stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.